Hello, Homerites. I'm Peter Turner and welcome to episode two of the Homer podcast as part of the History of Moviegoing Exhibition and Reception Research Network. Now, if you haven't listened to episode one, in which I talked to uh, some of our other Homerites, Anna Blagro, Sam Manning and Kate Vandeven, about their research, how lockdown has impacted their cinema going and, and much, much more, then please do give it a listen. It's available from the Homer website. Um, it's also now available on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker and, and a few other podcast platforms. So have a look around. The day I'm recording this, November the 5th, we're still waiting for a result in the US election. Um, so fingers are crossed for some uh, sense of sanity. And England has just entered what's being called the worst sequel of all time, Lockdown 2. Um, so that's that's a bit sad. But that isn't stopping any of us from lecturing, teaching, researching, and it's not going to stop this podcast. So today I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by Homerite Brian Hannan. Brian is the author of many books about film, including the very recently published When Women Ruled Hollywood, the untold story of how actresses took on the Hollywood hierarchy. He's also the author of two books about Paisley, the town in which I think he lives, uh, we shall find out, uh, Paisley at the Pictures 1950 and its uh, forthcoming sequel Paisley at the Pictures 1951 uh, and he's also the author of a book Coming Back to a Theatre Near You, A History of Hollywood Reissues 1914 to 2014 which I think is going to be very interesting to discuss given that our cinemas have been full of reissues this year. So without further ado I'm delighted to be joined by Brian right now. Brian, hello. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm going to start with, I, I read on, on one of your bios that you tend to try and watch two movies a week in the cinema. So how has this year been for you and how have your film watching habits changed, if they have at all? Well, uh, I still, when, when the lockdown got lifted up here, I was back to two movies a, a day, two, two movies a week. I usually go on, on a Monday or a Tuesday, um, and I've got a, 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 one of those season tickets to the audience, so it's, it doesn't cost very much. Um, and sometimes I can squeeze in three or four if I can get the timings right. So I'm a, I'm a very old-fashioned uh, cinema buff. I go and see what's on. And generally, I mean, some most like most I do go to the audience. Occasionally, I go to the GFT, Glasgow Film Theatre in Glasgow, but that's extremely uncomfortable for somebody of any size or anybody with long legs. You find it very hard. Um, so yeah, it's it's been um, mostly when I wasn't good at cinema, I was just watching um, old movies. Uh, basically, I've got a 2,000-strong collection of DVDs, and you've always got YouTube and, and everything else, so you can watch movies as long as you like. The one thing I did notice from from watching movies on television um, and DVDs, I don't you could stop them and watch wee bits. The, the impact of the screen is astonishing. When you watch a movie on the screen, on the big screen, you see so much more. I mean, you just do. You just see things that you wouldn't really spot. It's almost like watching an old Cecil B. DeMille film. Watch Cecil B. DeMille on television, you'll, you'll see very little of what he's actually so good at. And at one point was considered one of the greatest directors. Isn't now, of course. He's um, fallen way out of fashion. But, you know, you, you notice things in the big screen you just don't notice at all on the small screen. So I, I've kind of just, I've seen a lot of reissues, obviously, I've seen Inception and some like it hot and uh, 
but otherwise bajillionaire, the honest thief, and really whatever whatever comes up, I go and watch it. So, did you have a period where there was the the yeah. cinemas were shut? Scotland came out of lockdown at the same time as the rest of Britain, so basically was it four or five months? Right, terrible, a terrible punishment to anybody who likes the movies. I do think anybody who's a film student or is in this industry uh, on the academic side at all should make the strongest efforts to go to the cinema because it's on you. It's on cinema that your careers rely. You know, I think kind of going to the cinema maybe once a month seems to me extortionately bad. Mm. To the movies, doesn't matter what's on, give them your money. Absolutely, yeah. It's um, it's a really difficult time for the industry. So. Yeah, that that's interesting. You you're you're talking about the biggest screen possible. I, um, I'm I mean I'm finding a similar thing just just because, and this is a very small version, but but I bought a big TV uh, in December last year, and it's the biggest TV I've ever owned. And I'm finding I've got to rewatch all of my favourite films because it's absolutely breathtaking. It's it's watching the film almost for the first time again. It, it's it's so revealing. Have you found your film watching habits changing at all? Has there have you started to this streaming services and that sort of thing? Have they have they been big for you? I kind of think one of the problems with streaming and Netflix pictures is they're not very good. I did get, I saw the trial of the Chicago Seven before it was on Netflix, and I can't imagine how you could follow it on a small screen. It's so complicated. The characters are so vivid. Um, there's so many of them. You think, could you follow this mm-hmm. small screen? And, you know, I think a, a, a movie in the cinema is a different thing. It's a movie made, even made for the small screen. You go back to the television movies of the 1970s that Universal used to always make, you know, and some of those got released in Britain as cinema features, but they were all kind of, you know, made for television. There's a different attitudes. There's a different. You're making it for a small screen. You know, it doesn't really work. Mm. It's interesting because Netflix are still persisting with the with with the you know giving them a cinema release, which is something. Doing that to get an Oscar. That really works. Yes. The reason you know it's not really it doesn't make any sense. No. And if I wonder how long if, they'll persist. If it all goes the wrong way, then and all the all the cinemas in America go belly up. I can see Netflix buying a few, and then mm. starting doing uh, releasing films in the cinema because they can make more money. Your most recent book, When Women Ruled Hollywood, was was published this year, um, pretty much during the height of all this lockdown. Um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, well, it was meant to be launched, but um, there was a festival, a conference in Dublin. May that I was invited to talk at, um, and um, that was where it was meant to be launched. Of course, that was cancelled. So all the launch, <laughs> the whole launch thing was just a complete disaster. You know, trying to get trying to get the message out was, you know, if you get two hundred people interested in that subject attending a conference, then you get you'll get your book out. But if you don't, then it's a much harder slog. Mm. Uh, but you know, it still it still attracts a lot of interest because everybody just says I don't believe it. <laughs> I, used to run, I used to run a one-day course in Strathclyde on this subject before I started writing the book, and the first thing I said to a, 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 an audience, mostly of women, it has to be said, i say, put up your hands. At the very beginning, I'd say, put up your hands if you think this is a lot of rubbish, and they all put their hands up. And at the end, I said, put up your hands if you now think this is not a lot of rubbish, and they all put their hands up. 
So I had convinced them that it was it was you know what I'd find out. Uh, I'm surprised I'm the one who found out because you know I'm not. This isn't really my field, um, women in, in film. But I, I found out from doing research in other books. I'm doing research in other books. I would find things out, stick them in a notebook, and, and wait until I find something else. So I'd kind of found out that in 1918, Mary Pickford, who was the biggest star of the time, got paid 1.8 no, million dollars. He's coming to 30 million dollars now. Wow. Three times as much as Charlie Chaplin earned. And wow. nobody earned $1.8 million again as $1.8 million until the 1970s. So I kind of thought, this doesn't, <laughs> this doesn't sound right. This must be a one-off. So I kind of went back, um, to 1910, which was when the first movie star appeared, who was also a woman, Florence Lance. Um, and I, at the same time, I was checking out other uh, areas. So I discovered that, that women could be, mostly women, as you know, were just paid but a salary, you know, they were paid for working so many hours in a shop or a field or whatever. Um, no, really, no, really different to most men in that respect. Um, but paid a lot less than men. Um, and I, but I discovered that, uh, the number one bestseller in 1910 was by a woman. And the biggest bestseller of the, the 1900s was by a woman, um, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, and I also discovered, um, through reading all the trade papers that the biggest star on the stage was also a woman, Gertrude Hoffman. And she was earning, um, 150,000 a year. So I kind of thought there must be a different, there must be something different going on here. This, this can't be right. So basically what I kind of worked out was that in books you're paid for book sales. In theatre and cinema you're effectively paid for bums on seats. So if you can prove that you're the person responsible for increasing capacity in cinema, you will be paid more. And if you've got basically the gumption to go and say, I want more money, you will get it if people think you will be delivering the goods. So basically, I just tracked all this from 1910 to 1948, effectively. I was helped. So basically, in the, in the 1920s, um, it was again a woman who was the top earning star in the 1930s. It was Garbo. And I basically, the government, the American government did me a big favor because they were furious at the salaries that anybody was earning, never mind women. In 1934, they, they put, they brought in a law that made everybody who earned over a certain amount have to tell the government. So instead of somebody, instead of a company doing their annual results, just saying salaries, you know, whatever it is, $20 million. They had to say who had all been paid what. So this was all published. The government hoped they would shame the industry into paying people less. That never happened. So the first in the first year of this, which covered the entire industry, not just movies, in the first year of this, the highest earner was uh, William Randolph Hearst. We all know his citizen came. So he got half a million dollars a year. The next highest was May West. So he got $480,000. So I tracked all this way, all this all the way through, um, from 1934 to 1948, and it seemed to most of the time, the 1930s, it was mostly women who were the top earner. In the 1940s, it would have been women, women, it was kind of even Stephen, but only because there was a number of very odd anomalies on the male side, um, such as Fred McMurray being the top star, even though in the two years he was the, he was the highest earning male actor, highest earning actor at all. He only had one film out of nine in which he was actually the star. So he was getting paid all this money because 
everybody else was away at the war and they needed a talk more. And basically, I just kind of tracked all this through and basically just found out that women were actually pretty much as highly paid as men, often more so, um, simply because they knew how to, you know, they just went and asked for more money. They were going strike or they would, you know, just tons of different maneuvers to get more money. Um, and they did because they were worth it, effectively. You know, if you knew you could. And in those days, the, 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 um, the studios would sell, you know, people were still, uh, theaters were still hooked into, you'd have to buy the entire output of a studio. So you'd 50 or 60 pictures a year. So they would say, we've got three Greta Garbers, we've got four John Crawfords, we've got five Clark Gables. That's how they sold these packages. Uh, and so they needed to guarantee that they had these stars and that, and they just kept them sweet by, you know, giving them more money. Uh, and women, women seem to be as good at getting more money as men. It seems almost impossible from the, I guess, the received wisdom or whatever. It, it, it just, it, it seems mind blowing to me. But so, so, so what, what happened? What do you think happened in, in 1948? What, what, or is there a shift or? There wasn't, there wasn't a shift. It was just that the government stopped doing this. It was far harder to track um, the, the actual annual earnings of virtually all the top stars. What happened in 1940, of course, was a paramount decree when the government forced um, studios to stop owning cinemas. Um, so that, that was basically the big split. And then after that, instead of the studio system collapsed because they couldn't afford to keep everybody on in long-term contracts. So basically people then went back to um, shorter con- term contracts, maybe a two-year deal or three-picture deal, and it kind of evened out for a bit. But in nineteen in the 1960s, Elizabeth Taylor was the highest earning star. She got two million for Cleopatra. Wow. You know, it was kind of, and, you know, Julie Andrews, one of the reasons um, everybody reckoned that Paul Newman was so bad in Todd Curtin was because he was so annoyed that Julie Andrews got more money than him. So, wow. so it wasn't kind of, you know, it wasn't, Streisand was another classic example. If you ever look at the, the posters for the way they were, this came out at a time when Robert Redford had made Butch Cassidy, he was a Sting, Jeremiah Johnson, all huge hits. Top of the bill, Streisand. It was always Streisand and Redford in the way there. It wasn't Redford and Streisand, which is which would be the normal way, because if it's anything it would be alphabetical. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and even these days, a lot of women, Jennifer Lawrence a couple of years ago was by far the highest earning star. Anybody who got themselves into a, a series, um, that they had to keep paying you more to keep in the series, they made a lot of money. But it certainly did. And when the 1970s and 80s became Sylvester Stallone's was, and I got all these mega action pictures that sold much more easily around the world. That's when the decline in, that's when there was much more salary disparity. Mm. But people like Sandra Bullock, she makes a fortune. She's a producer. She knows what she's doing. She's one of the savviest people around. So we're talking about the very highest, the absolute highest level stars of the of the of the decades, but all, all the way through. Is there an argument that generally f- female actors were still being paid less than male actors for doing equivalent work? But not up to the nineteen fifties. No, they they weren't. Um, they were being paid for doing, you know, they were, they were paid on a salary and they got, you know, they, you know, like John Crawford getting 400 grand a year, Betty Davis 400 grand a year, 
men Betty Davis er mor end den Humphrey Bogart, som var hoved af den 1940s. So I just, I just dig. I just, you know, look at something and, and just chase it all the way through and just, and for some reason, I have no idea why nobody's picked all this up. I have no idea why. Beyond the upper levels, it's not, I would, I guess that a lot of the lower level female stars perhaps didn't as, earn as much. Right. Uh, at some point, you know, there was very few directors. There was more directors in Hollywood before 1918 than there were at any time after that. Right. Uh, but screenwriters, you know, the highest paid screenwriters in Hollywood in the 1920s were women. Um, and that, a lot of a lot of Hollywood changed because it became uh, an industry. It became a turn up at work at this time and you worked till then. In the early part days of Hollywood, you could more or less make movies at home. You know, you were making short movies with very few crew, very little equipment. You could just make them and, and chuck them out. So you could you had far more control if you're wanting to... Have a, you know, if you have a mother and you need to look after kids as well, it was much easier to do it. But once the whole uh, studio system kicked in, it became much harder for women to do those kind of roles. Um, mm-hmm. But at the top levels, I said up to 1948, it was, uh, it was women who, in some respects, dominated. No, it wasn't quite, I mean, I would have said that it would, I would have said it, it, it was more in favor of women than men at the top level. I wouldn't have said women dominated, but I wouldn't have said they leave even Stephen. I would have said that they, the 1910s women earned more, 1920s it was kind of even Stephen, 1930s women earned more at the top level, 1940s, except for a few, as I said, the Fred Murray anomaly, the Abbott and Costello anomaly, which was even a big, even bigger anomaly. Apart from that, women who have earned more. And in one year of the top seven actors in, in Hollywood, Six women. It's interesting because when I I think back, and, and, and I'm not the the biggest sort of Hollywood historian. I, I'm you know I'm I, I guess in a way uh, I hate to say this to you because I know that you're a big fan of sixties films and things. But but for me, cinema got got really interesting from the seventies onwards, and I know that's blasphemy. I agree with that to a large extent. Oh, okay, cool. Okay, I'm not I'm not being too offensive there. When I look back on uh, Hollywood history, I, I really, I, I think of the female stars. They are the ones that pop into my mind. And and I'm sort of, I'm, I've been hearing recently about a sort of, uh, that with this app that the kids uh, are all using, TikTok, there seems to be this, um, there's this trend of um, sort of reappropriating uh, classic Hollywood stars. Um, female stars and and it's it's really interesting to me so so they were they were hugely valued back then and i think they are now things about it one thing about a woman if you examine any of the 1930s films or 1940s when did john wayne or spencer tracy or indie like that ever get a scene where they were a minute and a half on camera how could when could you ever focus for more than 10 seconds on John Wayne's eyes. But Greta Garbo, 
Oh, this was extraordinary. You know, in one of the, when I was doing my, my lecturing on this, one of the things I pulled up was Gilda. Yeah. When you first meet Gilda, you've got a, you've got a shot of Glenford come up the stairs, and as Jen, as Glenford opens the door, you get a shot of his face, last five seconds. Then you turn to Gilda, and she throws her hair up, and the shot sticks in her for about 30, 30 or 40 seconds. And then you go back to him, and he's just like, he's just a bit of wallpaper. Mm. The things that, the things that women could do with their faces, and still can, it's far more expressive, they show much more in their eyes than men do. Um, and so the, in those days when they were concentrating on the female face, the, the big directors that, that knew how to do this, they would have fantastic footage. It's just mm. extraordinary to watch. Um, you know, the end of Queen, Queen Christina, you know, there's a, is that the, you can see where they got the end, the bit of Titanic at the top of the boat from, because that's where it came from. But you, mm. you actually follow her eyes for about a minute and a half. And that's all you get. And she changes her emotions incredibly. People, so audiences really responded to that. Now, I said both male and female. Um, but the, the studios knew, you know, we need this kind of picture. This is what, this is what audiences come to see. Mm. And then, uh, the women just asked for more money and got that. Okay, so uh, let me uh, move on then. Uh, the, the, the book sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, can I just ask about uh, Paisley at the Pictures? So you've got Paisley at the Pictures, 1950. Um, it's all about um, movie going essentially in Paisley, where you live. Is that correct? It's where I live now, but I didn't live. I didn't. I only moved to Paisley ten years ago, so it's right. Just, you know, we don't have a cinema anymore. We, uh, we have we have actually fifty screens quite about five or six miles away from it in eight directions, so we're not short of movies, not short of cinemas, but we don't have any cinemas anymore. Right. And and you've got the, the sequel, um, Paisley at the Pictures nineteen fifty one coming out. So can you just tell me a bit about these books? Yeah, I mean, they basically started from a very odd, it started right out from a book that went wrong. I've got a collection of, of press books, you know, press books of what cinemas got when, from studios. It's a big marketing, a big 24 page, 10 page, 4 page, A4, A3, A2, um, magazine, virtually mini magazine that they sent out to every cinema showing any film. And those were telling the cinemas how to market the film. And often they'd be filled with ideas if you're showing an American in Paris, get people to make a, an Eiffel Tower of Meccano set. If you're showing Father of the Bride, do a tile with a local wedding shop. So I thought it would be really interesting to go back to a newspaper and see how then they use these ideas. So I went down to my local uh, newspaper, my local museum, and picked out the, um, the Paisley Daily Express and went through it for five years, 1950 to 1954. And discovered that virtually very, very few of these ideas were used. Very, very few. But as I was doing it, on the front page of newspapers, if you, in, in the old days, local newspapers had adverts on the front page. They didn't have stories, they just had adverts. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the front page, and the biggest advert on the front page was a block of advertising for every cinema. Um, and they advertised every day. So I just, out of pure curiosity and being that kind of person started writing down whatever he was, every cinema was showing every day. Okay. And the time I realized that the original idea was rubbish and was never going to come to anything, I had become intrigued. 
on what the cinemas were showing and why, because a lot of the film, a lot of the things that were being shown weren't what I expected, and a lot of the films that I thought they'd show they didn't, or they showed they showed they were shown in a very for a very small short period of time. So basically, I just kind of took the first year and then just I had they, they were showed over twelve hundred films in Paisley that year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I discovered that, that um, the eight cinemas, six of them were first run and two of them were second run, so they would show the, the, the new movies maybe a month or three months after the, the first one. But you were basically being offered about 22 pictures a week on average. Uh, and subsequent to this, I did a, a project with people who lived around that time. So I spoke to maybe 200 people. Um, but what I did at the back of the book was I just listed all the films that were shown in the cinemas that were shown in month by month. Mm-hmm. And I printed that off and gave it to all the people who were you know, collected and asked them to go through and tick off the pictures they'd seen. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, how many will they probably have seen? And all I saw was tick, 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 tick. So where somebody like Annette Kuhn says, Films were just a, people only went to the pictures for a social occasion. Mm. You could remember many of the films they, they saw. I found that if you showed them all the films they could have seen, they remembered them. If you asked them, "Did you see this?" Yeah. I mean, people would see you know go to the pictures three or four times a week, far more than me. I'm I'm just a you know a young person to be to that. In those days, you know, people would might see two thousand films in ten years. So if you're asking somebody to pick out, you know, if you ask them, you know, pick out the, your favourite films, you wouldn't necessarily do it. But if you give them a list of all of the films that were available, you soon find out they saw tons. Mm. You know, and then you could say to them, well, you know, which film, which cinema? Did, you would see that some people only went to one cinema. So you say, why do you only go to that one? You'd find out why. You say, well, how did you get to that cinema? What did you do? Did you buy some sweeties or did you buy fish and chips on the way out? So you've got this massive amount of data about mm. people's cinema going, which I don't think anybody else has explored either. But the whole idea that people of, uh, of an older generation don't remember the films they saw, nonsense. I mean, they did. They, they wouldn't be taken up. And the other thing I found was that a lot of the, their attitude to film was quite different. A lot of the, you know, one of the one of the questions of anybody wishing to go into the Homer section of the business should be, do you know who Leo Gorsi is? Have you heard of Leo Gorsi? Mm-hmm. You've never heard of him. No, very few people have heard of him. Leo Gorsi mostly made uh, B pictures, but he made a, he made two series. He made um, the Backstreet Kids. Is that they got that right? He made the um, he made two series uh, based up mostly based out of the, on the, the film Dead End that came out at the end of nineteen thirty. He made two series, and basically these movies were shown all the time. You know, his films would be seen all the, repeated again and again and again. If you said to people around that time, you know, oh yes, oh he was fabulous. Now you you know we all we only ask people because we study film as an academic process. We've been fed the critical line. So basically, this is you should be talking, ask people if they ever saw a Bud Bottisher film or what did they think? Do they prefer John Ford or Higher Ops? People in the 1940s and 1950s didn't go to the cinema with that perspective in mind. 
But we've been given that perspective because, you know, we're asking people about films we think they should have seen. Mm. Well, so, for example, I found out the Gunfighter, for example, only played for three days in Paisley. Lavender Hill Mob only played for three days in Paisley. Interesting. So, so you know, there was a lot of things that people, and I think there, I think there are also massive regional differences. Massive mm. regional differences. One of the things I discovered, so what I did, as well as, as well as, and they also was analyzing, was analyzing um, how many days a star's film stayed in the cinema. So who, who, who was the biggest star by the number of days played? So in those days, a film would be released either uh, very rarely for six days. Mm-hmm. Only two of the biggest cinemas would show films for six days. Um, for three days, you'd see it for, you'd either have a film playing Monday to Wednesday or mm-hmm. Thursday to Saturday. There was oh. one film, one cinema in Paisley that changed the program three days a week because it was a rerun house and it had to keep on uh, changing the program. So, it would, so if you had a film that was playing six days, mm-hmm. that was that was going to be a really good film. And obviously, the, the cinema owners and exhibitors were having to plan: if I show this film for six days, am I going to make more money than if I show two separate films for three days? And mm-hmm. um, so, it's a kind of different a different perspective. So, I tracked all the. Um, all the stars and the movies they'd made and how long those movies remained in a cinema. And I discovered that, that in both years, the top star in Paisley was a woman. The top star in, in um, 1950 was Virginia Mayo, and the top star in 1951 was Jane Wyman. So Virginia Mayo's films, she had eight films on the go, including old ones, um, that ran 53 days. And for Jane Wyman, it was uh, seven films that ran 57 days. Mm-hmm. So what I discovered was that cinemas, if they knew a star, there was a lot of interest in a star, they would bring back older films. They had to in any case because um, the supply of films was, was pretty bad. Um, only, uh, I think it was uh, 8.5% of the movies shown in Paisley in 1950 were made that year. So the, so the food chain was very long. Mm-hmm. Films went to London first, and then they went out to the bigger cities. So Paisley had a, a 93,000 people mm-hmm. um, in the town, so it wasn't it wasn't like Glasgow, which was half a million mm-hmm. or four, wasn't like Birmingham or Manchester. Mm-hmm. So films, you know, went. They took a long time to come down. I only found two films in those two years that were what you might call day and date simultaneous release to the big cities, which was the Blue Lamp, the Forerunner of Dixon, the Doc Green, and a very um, contemporary story called The Courted. Um, we both showed in Paisley roughly about the same time as they were showing in, in, in London. Um, and this kind of thing wasn't new. I remember when I was in the, when I was growing up, I used to look at, you know, things like films and filming and film review and all these things. And I'd look and, and they'd always say what films were being launched in London. And I'd wait months and months, sometimes years for them to turn up and go, oh, see these lines and lines, you know. And I'd see all these things, north side, it's going to be North London and South London. I'd say, why isn't it in Glasgow? What are we waiting for? So it was even worse in those days. And also in Scotland, we didn't like English films. Um, very few English films were shown under 10%. Um, wow. And the reason, the reason wasn't, the reason, there was two reasons. One was that, you had um, English-received pronunciation, and they all talked posh. <laughs> they did or they didn't. So most people, so the first reason was most people worked in factories, and their owners were posh. Right. So the owner had bound to be posh. 
So the last thing they wanted to do was go to the cinema and listen to their choices in their leisure time. But the second thing, more importantly, was that American movies were just better made and faster and faster stories. British films were pretty slow. And there was a, if you look at any American war films, there's never a class issue. In British war films, it's always about the officer. Mm -hmm. American war films, it's John Wayne. Oh, God, they're just ordinary guys. So there was a lot of, you know, a lot of um, connection with those type of characters. And they just, they were, they were just better made. So especially given that there was a, you know, there was various um, court assistants where you had to show British film. Mm -hmm. I kind of wondered how they, how they get around all that. So there was just lots of, so I just basically kind of found lots of interesting um, things. So in those days, unlike now, now you go to the cinema, says we're showing it at 5 o'clock, 7 o'clock and 9 o'clock, that's when you go in tonight when it's finished. In those days, it was continuous programming, which mm -hmm. was the same in America. You went in when you wanted, yeah. and when you saw the bit, you'd, you'd finished. So it was very hard for cinemas to work out how many seats they had left for the last showing. The mm -hmm. people still sitting there Seeing, you know, the, the first, they seen the first 15 minutes of the feature, or they seen the last 15 minutes. You know, it was kind of quite an odd thing. Mm. That was when the, when the Americans changed it, there was an absolute uproar, uproar, you know, we want to go in when we want, you know, yeah. when, we go, when we can go into the cinema. And so it meant that people would go into the cinema all day long and say, oh, I, you know, I can't go in it half past four, I've got to wait till six o'clock and just go in. And also they were showing double bills most of the time. 73% of the, of the programs in 1950 were double bills, 80% in, in 1951. People wanted value for money. Mm -hmm. um, so that was kind of, uh, and mostly what you, you generally get two films, you got a cartoon, a trailer, newsreel. Two of the cinemas in case they also still showed old, old newsreels, uh, old serials. Okay. You know, the Purple Monster Strikes or Dick Tracy or Flash Gordon. These were all old. And these were the only movies that Jimmy advertised in the paper apart from on the front page. So it was kind of an odd, it was kind of an odd, um, an odd thing. And we had lots of, uh, B picture films, you know, Hopalong Cassidy, Roy Rogers, Charlie Chan. Um, but there was also, strangely enough, uh, some, in, some foreign films get shown. Um, in the 1950s, 1950, it was Stromboli, which was Ingrid Bergman, which you might expect. Mm -hmm. but you wouldn't expect uh, Night of Fame, which was a, an Italian film featuring a French boxer. And you probably wouldn't expect The Rats of Tobruk, which was an Australian film. Or, you know, Golden Madonna, which is a British-Italian film with, with Phyllis Calvert. The oh. next year, there was about half a dozen Australian films, but also a bigger, there was a Swedish film get shown. Um, which was, which featured in a small part Ingrid Pullen, who later became a, a famous actress. Um, so it was kind of interesting what people, what was shown. And I suspect some of these things were shown because they were short of, uh, you know, short of programs. Yeah. But nonetheless, they, they did get shown on a regular basis. And uh, so. were, there, were there Scottish? Productions as well, Scottish films. Yeah. I mean, occasionally, a film like um, Happy Go Lovely, which had uh, David Niven, um, and it was set in Edinburgh. That right. Was, anything that had a Scottish theme. Right. Um, but there wasn't really that kind of. There wasn't really a Scottish 
film industry. Mm, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, Rob Roy films and that kind of thing is, is the most we, we would get. But that would be an American studio or a British studio deciding that we could do something with Scottish scenery or... Mm, yeah, yeah. Kind of thing. So finally then, book, you've got many, many books that we haven't got time to talk about all of them. But the last one I did want to talk to you about um, was Coming Back to a Theatre Near You, A History of Hollywood Reissues from 1914 to 2014. Feels like it could not be any more relevant right now because we are we are in a period of, um, well, you know, for, for a little while there before Tenet came out, it was just reissues for a little while. I think I hear on the... Um, the, the top 10 of the box office for the UK each uh, week when I hear it on the um, Kermode and Mayo podcast thing, there's still reissues that are in there, uh, in the top 10. So this is not new whatsoever. Um, what, what was your interest in this before the pandemic? <laughs> it came to, two of my books came, I wrote a book about the making of the Magnificent Seven. Um, and I always thought, that Magnificent had been a huge hit. I always thought it. I really always thought it had. But in fact, it had been a huge flop. But it had been, it had been, and it had made its success by being reissued. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was one of the fastest movies to go into television. It was on American television in 1963. So about two and a half years after it was made, which was very, very fast in those days. But they kept on reissuing it. Um, but it didn't play, it didn't have a world premiere. It didn't get a premiere in New York or Los Angeles. It didn't play on Broadway when it first came out. First time it played in Broadway was in 1974. It was reissued yet again. So I kind of thought, so I was kind of, so I was looking at how its success had grown. I tracked its reissue. Um, and I realized that as I tracked it, I was coming into what would become a golden age of reissues. I didn't realize that at the time, but I just thought this is quite interesting. I just went back to the beginning. The other thing about uh, Magnificent Seven, which led to a second book, was it was actually one of the first films to be given what we would call these days a wide release. But in those days, in 1960, anybody who got that wide release was a movie they thought was a dud. They wanted it in as many cinemas as possible before people realised this is rubbish. So that led me to look at the history of wide releases, uh, which again started in 1910s, and that's called in theatres everywhere. Basically, what happened with with reissues? Reissues is something that anybody who's studying um, the history of exhibition and movie going to reception should really look at because it is the it's the battleground between the studios and um, cinemas. Mm-hmm. Cinemas are looking to try and make money in whatever way. Generally, older films are cheaper to rent than your films. Studios don't want them to rent older films because every time they rent an older film, they're not renting a new film. Um, and, you know, at some point, the studios would then say, right, okay, we're charging the same for an old film as we are for a new film, which did happen. So there was a big battle. And for the first 50 years of, of when I was doing this from like 1914 to 1964, it was a, it was a constant battle between studios and, and cinemas about reissues. After that, it changed completely, which I'll explain. So basically in 1914, the, there was something called the General Film Council, which basically had a monopoly. On, on film distribution. And they laid down a law that said you couldn't, all films had to be binned after eight months. You couldn't show a film after eight months. This was to keep people booking new films. But by 1914, as with now, there was a huge, a huge movie shortage because the 
cinemas with the, the production companies were wanting to change from one and two real pictures to three and four real pictures, and the cinemas didn't want it. Mm-hmm. So there was a so basically stopped making films. <laughs> stopped making these many. So there was a huge shortage. So what filled the gap was Mary Pickford films and Charlie Chaplin films. Mm-hmm. And they, they made a fortune second time round. And people realised, oh, there's a lot of money to move from reissues. So basically, um, you find that the reissues continued. Anytime there's a big shortage, end of the First World War, reissues came back. And then they found that reissues filled other gaps. So if there was a new star appeared like 1925, Harold Lloyd, the comedian, then mm-hmm. the, all these previous films that hadn't made buckets of money, they brought them back. The star died, Valentino, in 1926. They brought back his old films, which they hadn't done before. They'd always thought, you can't do that. That's, that's, you know, a really big no-no. Mm. But people demanded them and they made huge amounts of money. And in 1927, John Gilbert became a, almost re, uh, Valentino's replacement. He became a big star. He'd been making films since the 1920s. So they, they bundled out all of, all his old films. In the 1930s and 1940, early 1940s, there was again massive uh, film shortages, partly because of the way the government had attacked uh, the movie industry. Mm-hmm. In the early 1940s, studios, instead of being able to sell a cinema 60 films a year, they had to sell them in blocks of five, maximum five. So they bundled five movies into a block. Mm-hmm. And that was what everybody expected. But what, what, this, what the studios actually did was, we've got a block of one. You're going to have to bid for this. And it's, it's a big film. We're not putting it in a block of five. It's a block of one. So people had to bid for and pay far more than they previously paid. Uh-huh. But everything the government ever did to the movie industry backfired disastrously. <laughs> um, so basically the, the studios then, um, refused to bring out reissues, refused to, they, initially they allowed them. And then they, then they put the big block on them because it was taking people away from booking new films. Mm-hmm. But in the, in the mid 1940s, um, there was enough old films sitting around from the independent filmmakers like Selznick and uh, Alexander Corder and people like that. And um, little companies sprang up, Astor, Film, film Classics, and a little chain called the Academies of Proven Hits. And they set out to find the old films and bring them back, which they did. And those then started regenerating business. Or the reissue business because they were independent of the studios. These were films that weren't owned by the mm. studio, owned by the independent producer. So after the, after the second world war, when there's another shortage, the studios themselves realized, uh, we maybe should bring some movies back. So, um, an, an early English Bourbon film called A Rage in Heaven, which had been a flop in 1941, was brought back and it made an absolute fortune. So they started bringing back Movies that you had been success, a double bill of Jesse James and the return of uh, Frank James, a double bill of She in the last days of Pompey. And they made, so, so basically what happened was that the issues would, would appear for about a year, make lots of money, and then there'd be too many of them and people would stop going to them and they'd go back. But there was more, uh, the Paramount decree that I mentioned to you that, that turned the whole industry upside down, that produced another massive shortage. And in mm. 1952, they brought back King Kong, and that made an absolute fortune. 1954, they brought, brought back Jewel in the Sun, The Best Years of Our Lives, and other big films, and they made big fortunes. But after that, it became mostly films that were about to go into television. 
and they right. they bring out you know double Errol Flynn double bills or James Cagney double films or Gary Cooper double bills. So it's I was I was gonna just ask so so TV the introduction of TV did change oh, this yeah. this reissue process. Um, but then so basically by 1960 it was kind of nobody knew which way it was gonna go. But the studios kind of thought we maybe should give this another go. So Universal brought back Glenn Miller's story with massive publicity, and Fox brought back The King and I again with massive publicity. Both of them flopped. But there was a, um, the, the exhibitors by that point had realized that with television coming, they needed really to, to stop this, to, to stop this huge swallowing of all these old films by, um, by television. So they set up an organization called Motion Picture Investors, um, and they bought the rights to the friendly persuasion, the Gary Cooper picture by William Wilder, the Western. And they brought that back. Uh, but that, that was a flop as well. So basically, basically it was kind of looking as though nothing's going to happen. This is the end of it. Um, and, you know, there, there'll be no point doing any reissues whatsoever until one of the ways that television paid for movies was judged in their box office. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when Bridge and River Kwai came up, which was made in 1957, um, the, the Columbia thought it was worth really quite a lot because it'd been a huge hit and won all these awards and television disagreed. Television said, no, we're not paying you anything like what you think. Okay. So Columbia just reissued it and it made, it became the second biggest reissue of all time. And it then, and it then, just to you know, to put the point home, it then got the biggest television um, sum. I got to get paid three million. Interesting. The television paid three million from Virgin America. So, and at the same, in the in the 1965, which is the real major uh, push, they brought back a double bill after Goldfinger. Hmm. Um, they brought back a double bill of Doctor No from Russia with Love. Both of those pictures done very well in Britain, but less so. They've done well in America. They're mm-hmm. not like a business. So they brought them back as a double bill, and that double became, bill became the fifth biggest picture of the year. So, you know, this is just like extraordinary money. So thereafter, people started thinking, okay, so as you know, all the James Bond films go, everything's a new one, old ones come out. Same mm-hmm. with Flint films, the Matt Helm pictures. Anything they could double bill, they would start to double bill. And at the same time, MGM, because this is roadshow era, this is the era of 70 mil roadshow pictures, mm-hmm. two shows a day, you've got a book in advance, blah, blah, blah. Um, but MGM, which had been sitting on Gone with the Wind, decided they would um, re-show Gone with the Wind in 70 mil. It had been made in 35 mil, obviously, so they blew it up. And then they, so that, that reissue made $35 million. Now that, that's on top of the seven million it had made in 1961 and 1954, and five million in 1947, and four million in 1941. So, you know, Gone with the Wind and various Disney films had always had a, a separate, you know, they, they were always a big reissue thing, but people realized that you could reissue films and make buckets. Because the, because one of the things that happened with Roadshow was that Roadshow ate up a lot of the existing fee because you had to, if you wanted to show a Roadshow film, you had to show it for a season, which was 13 weeks. Oh. Or two seasons. So, so basically if you had Lawrence of Arabia and, you know, El Cid and 
Mary Pop, you know, um, Sound of Music, whatever, all showing at the same time. You were eating up maybe four or five of the big cinemas in town. Hmm. So there was just a so the, a production backlog, and so to fill the gap, they chucked out lots of reissues. Um, and, and Disney fine-tuned their reissue system in the 1960s. They, they would bring back the oldies, and then they just a system of bringing them back on a very regular basis. MGM also invented, they had a very clever idea. They invented something called the Perpetual Product Plan. And what they did was something really unusual, especially as a commercial idea. What they did was they went back to the 1930s and 1940s golden oldies. So they would bring back the Jeanette McDonald, Nelson Eddy and musicals and various other films of that vintage. And they'd sell them to the cinemas. You, you can only show this one day a week, preferably Wednesday, but you've got to show eight in a row. So it's a season mm-hmm. of older films. And it was hugely successful. So, uh, you know, the kind of thing you might see now in a repertory cinema. Mm. And then there was also... Um, the, the extension of the kind of independent reissue specialists of the 1940s became things like Kino International and United Artists Classics. So they would bring, in 1960, this was when Bogart was reinvented and Garbo was reinvented. Mm. They were brought back big style. I mean, Garbo, um, they played a, um, a season of Greta Garbo films in the Empire Cinema in Leicester Square. Well, you know how big that is. So they had, you know, so these things were huge. Mm. Uh, so they kind of, so that was kind of the way that the business had really taken off. Of course, come the end of the 1960s, every, every studio's having a financial meltdown, a huge shortage of, of movies. Uh, most of the ones they've made in the wake of Easy Rider, all the youth movies had tanked. So they were really struggling mm-hmm. before The Godfather and Friends Connection and Jaws came into the picture, all the new guys that mm-hmm. Do think are the best movies. <laughs> Not really arguing with that. And um, so basically, when that happened, something else, something really strange happened. Um, I was talking about also about the book I wrote about um, wide releases. I discovered that wide releases became more became easy to manage if you were doing a reissue. So I discovered that. The, so what they would do was the what they called in America at that thing was called saturation. It's called a saturation. <laughs> So they'd bring back old film, not that old film, Butch Guys and the Sundance Kids, Jeremiah Johnson, Billy Jack, in the 1970s. But they'd bring them back, maybe 500 cinemas in one area one week, 500 cinemas in another area the next week. And then, but then they'd bring them back again. So, so virtually from 90, all through the early 1970s, Butch Cassidy was kind of playing constantly. They made four times as much money after its initial release than it did on its initial release. Do you know anything about the demographics? Who was it? Who was it? Was it particular groups of people? Was it young people, old people? People just liked seeing a film delight. They hadn't okay. done that before. They'd never, they'd never been. I mean, you would get, you always got first run. You know, if you, you saw a film in the West End of London and mm. you liked it, you actually, and it came to your local cinema, you could go and see it. Mm. And then that was it. It was gone. It was the same in the 1950s, basically. That was one of the interesting things. Once the movie, if you didn't catch that movie when it was shown, you'd never see it again. Very few reissues. Um, it was just gone. Make, they might pop up in television 15 years later, but mm. gone, you know, so many films have been shown. There's no way they're showing all these in television. So basically, they, they found that people just loved going back to see 
Which guys in the Sundance kids, Young Frankenstein, Greece, Star Wars, whatever. And it just became, you know, as I invented a term, three-issue, because the movies you came back, they were reissued three or four times. Mm. In a short space of time. And they always made buckets of money. Um, so it's quite, so the next, the next stage of this was, um, in, in the 1980s, we saw the beginnings of the restoration boom, you know, when they would restore old movies. So the kind of grand master of that would be Napoleon, Abel Gantz's Napoleon, mm-hmm. five with massive restoration. Um, and that became a huge kind of, uh, hit in, oh, in the art house terms, but it's still a big, huge hit by art house. Um, and they, they brought it, went, they did it as a kind of old fashioned roadshow. So the original roadshow was, in theatrical terms, was you took a, you took a show from, from town to town. And that's mm-hmm. it, Napoleon, because they couldn't make two prints of it. The ones that went to LA, it went here, and sometimes it was accompanied by an orchestra, sometimes it wasn't, but it made a huge amount of money. So that kind of got everybody interested in restoring old films, and that kind of has continued up to, yeah, but you also had in that in that decade you did start you the beginners of the director's cut, Lawrence of Arabia, and Blade Runner, um, with the, the uh, Blade Runners. I don't know how many director's cuts it's had. Yeah. yeah. Um, but also you had the 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 Lost Five Hitchcock films, the ones that he had to a rear window. They were reissued, and again on that kind of, you've got to show them in a season. So they would say, if you're booking one of these films, you've got to show all five. But what happened was that Ver- the first two they showed, Vertigo and Rear Window, were such a success. <laughs> the seasons were run to about 20 weeks. Wow. They just retain the film. So these were, you know, Hitchcock since then became one of the you know, godfathers of the reissue. So s- still in the 80s, which I, I guess I just sort of think of the era of the, the really, you know, big popcorn blockbuster, that these reissues, Hitchcock, that was still successful business venture. Yeah, people wanted to see, you know, yeah, very, very successful ventures. And you still see the director's cut. You know, I, one of the reissues I saw was a director's cut of Exorcist. Oh, wow. Which, well, I think they'd messed up, to be honest with you. It's a lot of attention by, by giving more time to, you know, Ellen Bernstein and whatever. I just thought it didn't really work. So, this kind of thing continued um, on a very regular basis. They kind of bring back an old film, bring back a Grease or a Boots Cassidy. That had kind of stopped. Right. But it was replaced by all the restorations and director's cuts and right. double bills of, you know, a couple of swords and a first blood one, first blood two, all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And in 2000, the, the most interesting aspect of, of, of all of the viewers' <laughs> story that I found was that. Right in the 2000s, the beginning of the 2000s, um, IMAX and 3D weren't things that people went to see. You went to see mm-hmm. IMAX in an IMAX cinema and you saw a 40 minute, well, a documentary travelogue going to Everest or the moon or, and 3D was much the same. Mm-hmm. Nobody, no, no studio was interested in investing money in 3D because it was far too expensive. Mm-hmm. But what they did was they reinvented old movies. So um, they made 150 million. So the, from IMAX films reissued, they made 150 million dollars. And uh-huh. in 3D, they made 270 million dollars. So films like Titanic, Toy Story, Toy Story in 3D, Titanic in 3D, and that basically convinced studios that 3D and IMAX were worth investing in because they uh-huh. saw the difference. You know, you you could only see these films in IMAX cinemas and in cinemas with 3D 
so the, these were films that had been in the cinema originally, what, three, five years ago? Yeah, something. yeah. yeah and they just, just looked at a way of reinventing them. And, and somebody hit upon the idea of, I think it was uh, Fantasia was the first. Okay. The first 3D or the first time I'm trying to remember. But basically they were looking at a way of just reinventing mm-hmm. old films because by this time all old films were immediately snapped up by DVD where they would make buckets of money. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then television and then their version of streaming. And, and they'd also have more, you know, restorations continued. Casablanca, Wizard of Oz, Blade Runner, and, and Metropolis, which of course is a fantastic restoration. So currently, what you've, then you've got the, the next version was the sing-along and the live orchestra, the Empire Strikes Back, the live orchestra. I was due to see Blade Runner with the live orchestra before the pandemic. Oh. But I've been shut down. <laughs> these are showing, these are showing, uh, major films in much larger venues. So generally, it would be a big, a big hall, maybe a concert hall or an event venue mm-hmm. where you can maybe seat 5,000, 6,000 people, mm-hmm. a live orchestra, a sing-along, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not quite sure how who does the bookings for these, but as you know, it's very popular. So so basically, you're coming back to the original point, you know, the issues have been here for over a century. It, it almost seems like it's cyclical. It but is. but it, it it is you think it's a sort of a yeah but reinvented cyclical so so idea has been there and somebody finds a way of reinventing it so you know it's either so as in nineteen forty they're bringing back old movies which hadn't done as well on the assumption that maybe they'll do better you know mm. didn't see nineteen see Legion F in nineteen forty went might come back at now because Ingrid Bergen was a big star after Spellbound and all and you know various other films mm. so it's kind of but it's basically just been constantly reinvented. You know, they'll, they'll reinvent something again. I mean, Inception did very well. Yeah. Although it's not, although interesting enough, it's not been really reissued in America. All of it, uh, all of it issue was around the world, not America. I mean, are they, are they, are they even allowed their cinemas open? I think, isn't it even sort of? Certain ones are, and I think that's why, that's why it wasn't. They were going to bring it right. after Tenet rather than before. Right. And so when Tenet didn't do so well, I think they kind of thought, oh, we're not going to waste it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you've seen, you know, you, films are, a lot of the ways that films get reissued these days is because there's a, there's a, there's a, um, anniversary, 50th, 60th, 70th anniversary. There's a 4K, uh, remastered mm-hmm. copy. Um, and that will often get shown for one day. Yeah. Um, you know, around the world. You know, one of the interesting things they did in the last few years was they've said it's only going to be shown on this day. Yeah. And if you don't see it, you're not going to see it again. Um, now, if you've gone and seen any of these old films remastered um, on the big screen, you're almost certainly going to go and buy it for the small screen. So mm. it's often been a way of, of um, marketing DVDs. Rather than there, and I think BFI's got a whole you know, business plan that's based on the issues. Mm, that's interesting, yeah. Bring back, um, you know, and, and you know, we'll get the rights to do it. Uh, there's a big company, the company's actually based in Glasgow called Park Circus, mm-hmm. and there's most of the reruns of, of older pictures. You know, if you have a look at their website and want to see Lawrence of Arabia, if you go to Guatemala, you can probably see it tomorrow. Or, uh-huh. Or Australia or somewhere like that. You know, you, you, they've got a big list of where all the films are showing, and they'll bring back films that have been remastered as well. The thing is kind of key to modern, the, the modern issue before the pandemic 
this pandemic has forced them just to look at what can we bring out to see. Um, so Hocus Pocus, for example, oh, yes. a, surprise, a surprise hit. But again, because it turned out, although it wasn't a big film in the cinemas, didn't do that well, it turned in, out like a big hit on DVD. It's mm-hmm. just cult classics. So people have gone to see that. Uh, you know, and obviously all the Halloween pictures. Uh, yeah. You know, virtually in the cinema, all the cinema, the Silence of the Lambs, that came back. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I mean, I think the they really struggle, I think, that <laughs> she wants to get some, you know, I think all the best reissues have probably been out or they're, they're refusing to release them. Well, it'll, it'll, uh, I, sus- I suspect as we move into December, if we're not all still locked down, we will see a lot of Christmas reissues, won't we? But I guess we do probably every year. It's a wonderful life is a classic example of that. that that's been reissued every Christmas. I mean, most, most art houses are short for two solid weeks and people will go back and see it every year again. <laughs> trying to do, they've been trying to position Casablanca as the Valentine's Day movie. And has that been successful? Not as successful as, as it's a wonderful life, but it has been relatively successful. And someday we'll find, you know, they'll, they'll find a movie that is Independence, you know, not Independence Day there, but they'll find a movie that they that will slit, fit into a slot. Yeah. All of us, nobody knew. Yeah. You know, all, all the reissue market has been reinvented by somebody. It's not somebody saying, what, what, what did we do last year or 10 years ago? It's what can we do now new? And I think that will be, you know, kind of the way forward for somebody to say, okay, let's do that. But a lot of the studios aren't allowing their older films to be shown because they know they won't make so much money. A valuable commodity. Yeah. One of the things about, you know, movies is the, you know, the, the largest part of the movie take is not from the cinema. It's from, ever after that, DVD, streaming, whatever. You know, make far more money from. Yeah. Uh, and the movies, like, they only lease movies at less than time. If they, you know, at the moment, I think it's Netflix, is, uh, Disney withdrew all its movies from Netflix. They don't make Disney movies anymore. So they, they could, they, they always, it was always a lease business. So movies like Gone there with the Wind have made awesome amount of money just by being, you know, you can shorten this television channel for three years on, you either bid for it again or we move it somewhere else. Mm. I move it down to a smaller television channel who's delighted to get it. Might end up in talking pictures, who knows? Just a completely different attitude to to old films. There's huge, huge, huge potential to rediscover uh, some excellent movies. Um, thank you so much for talking to me. That that has been absolutely fascinating. I hope and I encourage everyone to go and pick up uh, a copy of, of all of these books. Um, so thank you very much for your time. That's all for this month. Thanks again to Brian for, for coming on and talking to me. Uh, if you want to be on the next Homer podcast, please do get in touch. I've been Peter Turner. Please let me know if you've enjoyed the podcast uh, or any suggestions that you might have for the future. Thank you very much for listening.